The presenting sponsor of EcoCheck with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a volunteer-run, nonprofit 501c3 research and human services charitable organization providing a public research repository and studies the effects of all role-playing game formats, accessibility, and inclusiveness considerations for role-playing gamers, and the potential for RPGs to help various populations achieve their educational, recreational, or therapeutic goals. The founder of RPG Research is Hawk Robinson, and he has been wonderfully supportive of my creative efforts over the years, and previously appeared as a guest on EgoCheck back in January 2017 on Episode 7. So go back in time and check out our conversation about all the great work he's doing. Donations to RPG Research directly support research and community programs to help people improve lives. And more information for these programs can be found at rpgresearch.com slash donate. And before we get started today, I wanted to pass along another note that Limitless Adventures and I are still selling no assembly required for $5. And every penny of that $5 goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The book is a PDF of 10 highly detailed uh, monster characters that are available for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. It has wonderful art, a lot of backstory, and will be a great resource for your game. And again, every penny of that $5 goes to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can find No Assembly Required available for purchase through Limitless Adventures. And to find that, that is limitless-adventures.com backslash no-assembly-required. And you could also check out limitlessadventures.com for a lot of other great 5th edition materials. And if you scroll down through the page, you'll see the no assembly required icon to click on it for more information and the availability of the PDF for $5. So check that out and you're supporting a great cause. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and this week I'm very excited to welcome Elizabeth Clemens onto the show. She's the New Jersey Area Director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. If you've been listening to the podcast for a little while or following my blog, you know that I put together a, a book with Limitless Adventures of Dungeons and Dragons content, and that PDF is available for $5. And Every penny of that $5 goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So far, we've raised over $3,000 for that cause, which is uh, really fabulous. Thank you to everyone that's supported our efforts by either buying the book or sharing it online. Uh, very much appreciate it. So I'm thrilled that a member of the AFSP, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, is with us here on the show to talk about their work, uh, what that money goes towards, and just in general, you know, suicide awareness, just to give that topic some more light. Uh, so Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael, and I appreciate that introduction. Yeah, so we've been going back and forth for weeks, if not months, trying to get something scheduled. You've been very busy from all the you know, suicide walks and all the awareness work that you're doing. I guess for folks that you know, learning about suicide and this type of work, uh, something that might be totally new for them. Kind of what, what is your role with the organization? 
Absolutely. So with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we have 80 cha- 85 chapters nationally. And with those chapters come uh, area directors. And a couple area directors oversee a few chapters. Here in New Jersey, I oversee a statewide chapter, which is the New Jersey chapter. Mm-hmm. And with that comes multiple uh, responsibilities to my role. And as you said, um, with the scheduling, we just came off of our walk season, which our community walk season, and that is 16 walks that happen in the matter of an eight-week period. So our first walk begins on September 15th and our last one just ended on November 4th. And our walks are a great opportunity for us to connect to communities all throughout New Jersey and connect with either suicide loss survivors or uh, individuals who struggle themselves. And it's a great way for them to have a day and come out and meet other people in their local community um, and feel supported and feel that, you know, that they're not alone in in their grieving process. Or again, like I said, for those people who are are currently struggling or for, for those who have struggled, for them to meet other people who are kind of in the same position that they are. So the community walks um, is one facet to my to my role with AFSP as the area director. We switch over in the spring to campus walks, which we do quite a few of those in New Jersey, also with local uh, universities or colleges, community colleges and high schools as well. Um, and then outside of walks. The, the funds that are raised in the state of New Jersey through those walks then have the opportunity to go towards uh, statewide advocacy, our advocacy program, our education uh, prevention programs, our support programs, and then our research as well. And then there's a couple other facets that come along with that, too, with the opportunity to sponsor maybe some local suicide prevention conferences that happen in the state. So in a nutshell, there's there's many facets to my job that keep us very busy throughout the year, but nonetheless, making sure that we make sure that people know AFSP is here for them, and here are ways that you know we can help um, get them involved and in, and get them educated on what's currently going on with with suicide and, and suicide prevention. That's awesome. Thank you for doing all of that work. And you know, with my background as a psychologist, I've been aware of different kind of nonprofit options for you know suicide prevention, suicide education, and wasn't as aware of AFSP until the situation with with my brother, with him dying by suicide in 2017, and then started to do some research about what would be a good organization to to raise some money for, and learned that AFSP has been around since 1987 and was organized as a nonprofit to support suicide research and education. And I'm wondering, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, your background with other nonprofits and what led you to want to take on this this job? Because I imagine it's a very emotionally heavy job to be a part of. Um, so why was it important for you to to pursue this role? Absolutely. When at the age of fourteen, I believe um, I lost a family member to suicide, and at that age, didn't really understand, you know, the kind of the implications behind that and the effect uh, years later that it would have on my life. And then in 2013, I lost an old high school friend to suicide. And that was the first time I really began to understood, or excuse me, understand this, this disease, you know, this, 
this mental illness component behind suicide and that there's so much more to it. And really just at that point started some basic education for myself. I was with another nonprofit at the time in a different role. And when this opportunity became available almost two years ago, it was just something I knew I could take on with a passion to do this job. You have to have a connection to it. You know, as we briefly spoke about during walk season, there are numerous 14, 15, 16 hour days. You're working every single weekend. And if you are, in my personal opinion, I have to be connected to this cause to continue the fight that we fight. Um, especially as I, you know, continue to meet, people throughout the community and I'll meet them and, you know, they're in the process of trying to help their loved one. And maybe unfortunately their loved one dies by suicide. You know, I have to also be able to withstand that emotion with them. Um, so it is of the utmost importance to me, you know, that I am in this role where I have, you know, uh, the, the chance to make such a change in this state, but also at the end of the day, know why I'm fighting this fight. And what are some of the things that, whether it's through the walks or you know, smaller efforts like my own to, to raise money, where where does some of that money go towards? Like for the folks who are listening to the show and you know have purchased my book or, or donated um, other funds in, in this way, like how is the money used? How is the advocacy? Is the education like where? What are some of the programs that goes towards? Yep, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing that I would love to talk about first is our educational programs. Please, wonderful. We know that suicide is preventable. And one of the ways that we really talk about that and one of the ways that we really teach that is through our educational programs. There are three AFSP funded programs that we've created along with other mental health professionals. And those three are Talk Saves Lives, which is a community based program. Uh, More Than Sad, which is a school-based program that we can do with high school seniors and then middle school and high school teachers and faculty and parents as well. And then It's Real College Students and Mental Health, and that is for uh, 12th graders and then college students. And those are programs that we bring into the community free of charge. We host them throughout the state. And especially as we transition from Washington now, it's time to spend that money. And so really trying to be in every community that we can be and cover, you know, every 21 counties in New Jersey, um, but educating people on not just the research or, or not just the statistics, but what are the warning signs? What are the risk factors? You know, let's take a look at environmental risk factors. Let's take a look at historical risk factors. Let's take a look at behavioral risk factors. And then, you know, even more to that, okay, what what's the language we use? Maybe if we've identified someone who is suicidal, you know, talking to them and asking them directly about suicide, you know, no longer asking are you thinking of hurting yourself? Because to some people, that that's a two-folded answer. Um, they don't see themselves as hurting. You know, it, it can be seen two different ways. And then, of course, letting you know the community know. Okay, what what can they now do if they've identified someone who maybe is you know either uh, having suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, or really have has a suicidal plan. So that's just our educational programs. And there are so many more that we actually partner with other organizations on. We bring into the community as well. And those programs are safe talk, uh, mental health, first aid, assist training. So really our big component is the educational piece. And that's where we really like to see, especially for New Jersey, a lot of our funding going to. 
Another component, like I said, is our is our advocacy program. So we have a statewide advocacy program. And then, of course, we have our national advocacy program as well. Mm-hmm making sure that year round we're trying to meet with as many local congressmen, congresswomen, senators, local representatives as possible to let them know why, you know, mental health parity is so important and why this should be important to them. Um, we do a, uh, a yearly annual, excuse me, a statewide advocacy day down in Trenton where um, we go and uh, go to the Capitol and uh, present our, you know, AFSP display, if you will, and try to get as many people there just to stop and talk to us and let them know why they should care about this cause. Um, and then also we do our annual uh, advocacy forum in D.C. everywhere where advocates from around the country um, come to D.C. and we all get together and kind of storm the hill if you will, and um, lobby sure. on behalf of, of mental health. So then one of the other ways is just support. And obviously, uh, just almost two weeks ago, I think we're coming up on it, was our International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. Mm-hmm. And an international event um, around November 17th, I think, November or somewhere 17th. around there. Yeah. Yeah. November 17th. So almost two weeks ago, where around the you know globe, uh, survivors come together to designated sites and just have a chance to be with other uh, suicide loss survivors. And each event is run differently. We held six in New Jersey uh, this, this year, and we're always looking to grow that. Um, but just a chance of a day for them to all come together and have an experience to talk amongst each other and, you know, kind of share their their loss and what also has helped them in in their stages of grief. And then our last way that the funding is is spent is through research. And, you know, I think especially today with the the new CDC data coming out, um, one of the biggest things we know is that more funding has got to go into research. And we really have to start understanding mentally why this is going on. And I think, um, so we just, I believe since, gosh, let me find, I'll find that statistic for you. Um, but just in the last couple of years, there's been over like 5 million, I believe AFSP has donated just in research alone. So it's, it's those four fronts again, um, education, advocacy, support, and research that the dollars are spread in those four avenues. And it's all ama- amazing work and so necessary. And, and for me, you know, I went through my training as a psychologist and I've been in that career now for, for over 10 years. So I've been on that end of things where I've been delivering services, doing risk assessments with, with patients, uh, getting them connected to treatment. And then, you know, in more recent years, have had various family members or friends kind of have suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, and it culminated in my brother ending his life. And it's such a different thing to be exposed to it in that way as well. Uh, you mentioned the support side of things with uh, you know Survivor's Day or International Survivor's Day on the 17th of November. It's such a different type of grief because if you were to lose a family member to cancer or a car accident or something something else, obviously that is a terrible loss and there's a grief process that goes on. With a suicide of a, of a close family member or friend, there's not only that part of the grief, but there's also the 
what did I miss? What could I have done? Why did this happen? There's so much unresolved. And I'm not saying one is worse than the other. It's just different. And I think that can feel pretty, I mean, just speaking from my own personal experience, it can be isolating to have to go through those questions and to know that AFSP and others are trying to make that more of a acceptable thing to talk about in public and that you're not alone. There's other people like you. There's actually way too many other people like you. Let's support each other and get together. I, I think it's just fantastic. It, it is. And having lost a family member to cancer um, a couple years ago, it it is a different kind of loss. And I deal with our constituents who, you know, they're in probably – 15 years plus of, of the, of their loss and still wake up and constantly just want to know why. And they're just not going to have that closure. So I see that as a different loss, but, you know, talking about kind of, you know, giving them the support that they need in the sense of having other people that, you know, they can know that know what they're going through and know their pain. Part of, you know, trying to see the change in, um, in, in the annual suicide rate and doing our part to even, you know, to reduce that rate, even though obviously, like I said earlier, the CDC report just came out and we're up almost 4%, but the cultural attitudes about help seeking have got to improve. Um, we really, even with AFSP and in our community outreach that we do, whether that's through walks or through tabling events or sponsoring, you know, conferences or mental health fairs, we have to create a culture that's smart about mental health and where people just feel comfortable reaching out and saying, I'm not okay today or I haven't been okay. But also educating others that we need to ask those people those questions too. You know, my sister, uh, my younger sister put a really interesting spin on things for me uh, this past June when we obviously lost Kate Spade and, and Anthony Bourdain. And of course, I was posting all this stuff on my so on my personal social media. And she's really the first person who came to me and was like, Lizzie, as she calls me, mm -hmm. I, I, I get your posts. But why is there nothing about other people reaching out? You know, we're, you're talking so much about here are the warning signs and we need to make sure that, you know, you, these other people who are maybe noticing these differences in, in, in individuals behavior, they need to step up too and say, hey, are, are you OK? You know, I've noticed something different in you and whether they, that other person may find it silly and whether at the end it becomes it, it may be pointless. At least you've asked that question. Um, and that's one thing AFSP has done recently through our Seize the Awkward campaign um, on social media. Yeah, talk about that, because I've, I've actually linked that and sent that out on my Twitter campaign. account. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it's a national campaign that's really starting to pick up some great momentum, youth-specific, um, but I think can apply to absolutely anyone. But it, it's the most incredible, awkward <laughs> PSA, but it's it's meant to be that way. You know, it's 
seizing that awkward moment with a friend and, you know, it was just trying to start to have that conversation. And if you visit the website, you know, I, I encourage anyone, it's seizetheawkward.org. But scroll through the website because there are some great, again, video PSAs, but there also is educational information that can help guide young adults on how to have that conversation with a friend because it's not a it's not an easy conversation. It's never going to be an easy conversation, but we know it's a conversation that has to be had. Um, so it's it's kind of a twofold with you know uh, the videos and and the uh, the educational content to help guide those teens and and making sure that they know that the the role that they can play in in helping us you know fight fight this disease. Yeah, I think it goes through like specific things of here's what you can say. It's been something that we've really seen the high school students really embrace, you know, because we, we go and we speak to them and, you know, we tell them, you know, what we've talked about, these warning signs and these risk factors and here's what to look for. But then they all are kind of like, well, what do I say? And they almost want to role play these scenarios. And it's going to be different with every single person. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really has been a great thing to see them be encouraged to look at and help guide them in, in their ways of having a conversation with a friend that they may think is struggling. And, and with Seize the Awkward, like it gives you some language and some like specific pointers on how to have these conversations, how to check in with a friend or a loved one that, that you might be concerned about. And I think it also pairs with this idea of advocacy of changing just the culture of how people think about mental health care and you know, it's one thing to maybe identify, yes, this person seems to be depressed or seems to be uh, acting differently than before. How can this person get connected to treatment? What treatments are available? How easy is that system to navigate? And I, right. think, I think for a lot of people, that that's not an easy question of, well, if I'm anxious or depressed, where do I go? Who do I talk to? And I just, I think it gets into bigger issues about our healthcare system. Just mental health is not nearly as ubiquitous as it should be. Like I, I've been an advocate for a while of just telling pretty much everyone I can talk to, everyone should have a therapist. Like everyone has a physical doctor. Like you should just have somebody that you meet with to, even if it's just checking in once a year that like, yeah. Hey, we, we preach that, you know, we all hopefully go see a, you know, have a physical once a year. There should be some kind of mental health checkup once a year, but also making sure that those, even if it's, if it's not a therapist, maybe that you go see, but let's say a primary care physician, right? Um, We need to make sure that those PCPs are trained properly and how to screen for mental health and suicide risk. So are they asking the right questions? And, and then, you know, to get even to more detail, but are they asking the right questions? But then what are they doing after that? Okay. You've identified someone, where are you sending them to? What's your follow-up protocol? You know, and that's even something that our project 2025 focuses on, which is, um, our, our high impact uh, collaborative initiative aimed at the organization's uh, bold goal of reducing the national 
annual suicide rate 20% by 2025. And one of the things we, or two of the things we focus on that kind of go to what we were just speaking about are large healthcare systems and then emergency departments. You know, so many people are brought in after either a suicide attempt or in the, you know, or, you know, a, a mental health breakdown. And, you know, they're getting that quick treatment, quote unquote, and then they're dismissed. Right. And there's no follow-up or the follow-up is, is dependent on that patient. But so really trying to take a better look at our emergency departments and making sure that there really is follow-up protocol there and checking in with those patients who, who just came in and have been released. Yeah. And it, it's so complex and, you know, being on the other side of it, there are quite a few patients at times where, there's risk factors, you identify them, you come up with a plan, how to stay safe, here are the treatments that are available, and you can't force someone to participate in treatment if they don't want to, and it's a pretty limited band of fo- of people that we can say, well, you're not safe to be in the community, you need to be, you need to be watched. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just think about, you know, my, my brother, for example, he to anyone's knowledge, didn't have a prior attempt and made one attempt. And that, that was, that was it. And there's folks like that, but also folks who are kind of chronically making attempts and having thoughts of ending their life and, you know, are maybe in the hospital inpatient one, two, five times. Um, yeah. I think just the whole system, like one of the, one of the things I really enjoy about my, my work is that I'm in a primary care clinic and I'm doing exactly what you had mentioned, where if a primary care provider or a nurse recognizes with different screening questions and uh, just, you know, a better uh, patient's demeanor, they'll refer them to me. And there's no barrier to me visiting with the patient. They just walk them next door and I'm right there and I can do a more thorough assessment because I've had many years of training on this, whereas, uh, you know, nurse, primary care doctors maybe don't have as much training, but also don't have as much time as a resource because the primary care doctors are asked to see so many patients a day and asked to do so much and be experts in everything. It's, I just think there needs to be more mental health providers in primary care, Um, but but who pays for that? Who funds that? I mean, that's the, I think the landscape that needs to be changed. It just needs to be more, I don't know, more matter of course that like, yeah, in your primary care clinic, there's a behavioral health person whether it's a social worker or a psychologist or ideally more than one person, that would be amazing. I don't disagree with you by any chance. And I think that that's a lot of the stuff that we look at. And and again, like I said, when we talk about with even project 2025 of what's going to truly make an impact on getting these numbers, you know, now up to just over 47,000 deaths by suicide in 2017, go in the other direction. And it's going to be a component of all these things that we've really talked about. And so you've been with AFSP for almost two years now. What has been perhaps the most surprising thing about, you know, all this exposure to the education and the advocacy that's going on out there? What what have you learned about suicide that you maybe misunderstood or, or didn't consider a couple of years ago? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing, 
I may be going a little off skew with your question, but no, one of the it just came up recently um, as I was doing a presentation to school to a, to a local high school in New Jersey. Is these kids really want to talk about this subject? They are craving the the education aspect. They they really want to know, and that's been the most fascinating change for me to see. Um, you know, going back to when I was a kid, it it wasn't something we we talked about. You know, and until my family member's death, you know, I I I, I knew what happened, but I I was so young and I, I wasn't really educated on everything. And you know, life unfortunately just kind of kept going at that time. But to see these young adults, these young students recognize that this is something that they can play a role in and they are craving that education on how they can play a role and what, what they need to know and what, you know, what, what they can do. That's been such a an incredible thing to see. And as, as we talked about earlier, you know, creating a culture that's smart about mental health, these kids are really trying to make that happen. And just seeing a little bit of the stigma change around the conversation of mental health. You know, I know we have a long way to go, but these conversations were never happening when I was in high school or for even when I was in college for that matter. So I'm really, it's really trying to think about the word I want to use here, but encouraging to see that these kids are recognizing that this, this is, you know, a crisis and, and what can they do to step in um, and change that? And I think, you know, as much as we talk about you know, the youth is our future and, you know, we want to set the right examples and do that. But the fact when it comes to, to suicide and suicide prevention um, and talking about, you know, our mental, our mental health, um, seeing these young kids really be so hungry to learn as much as they can and, and learn the role that they can play um, has really warmed my heart. <laughs> yeah, it sounds um, like it's inspiring and, and provides some hope. It definitely does. And, you know, even if it's a school that they themselves have not experienced a suicide, just to see their energy behind it. And, you know, well, you know, Miss Clemens, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen at our school. So what can we do? And, you know, just, again, really trying to be advocates for their community and, and taking in as much as they can take in to really learn about what they can do. So I've really enjoyed working with that group. And just that's been the biggest change for me is seeing them change um, and really want to play a role in our mission. And what I would love to see is just for mental health skills to be taught in school as just a matter of routine. You learn how to manage distress. You learn how to deal with insomnia. Right. You learn how to deal with anxiety, depression. Uh, you know, we all had those sex ed classes in, in high school, but where's they the- They can't be any more awkward than this, those classes. Right. So where are the mental health classes right. though? Exactly. You know, where can these kids come in for an hour every day, five days a week to talk about depression, anxiety, you know, PTSD, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, all those, you know, not even all those mental health conditions that we know um, are part of suicide, but other mental health conditions as well, just so that they can be educated on that. So I, I, I second you on that one. 
How can we do that? How can we get that cup yeah, and running? Right. I'm already taking notes. I'm like, okay, we're planning for 2019. Here's, here's what I'm going to start with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I work with, you know, other mental health providers and we're all just like, we'll sit, be sitting around at lunch and just talking about how we wish there was just like a, a DBT class in high school for everybody where yeah. you just learn skills to manage distress and things that we know from decades of research, here are skills that are effective for these conditions. Here's how you can live a more balanced life. Here's how you can manage symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of depression. And it seems like you have to go out of your way to get that education, to get someone who can provide those services to you. And it's almost like we should be giving away mental health more, more often. Uh, from a prevent for prevention standpoint. And I mean, that's what AFSP is really here to, to try to do. And, um, you know, even looking at schools and um, if I'm correct on this, but it's every two years, I believe, that teachers have to do a mandated suicide prevention training. Well, and, and that varies through for every state, um, but specifically for New Jersey. Well, why can't it be every year? Why can't it be twice a year? And that's where we get into then our advocacy efforts. And when we meet with our local congressmen and congresswomen and, you know, representatives or senators, where we can talk about that issue. So I would encourage anyone looking to maybe do stuff like that, you know, start at your local uh, levels with your local representatives. But I know that's part of what we do when we go to DC every year or just in our, in our yearly communication with our, our local state, New Jersey representatives is, you know, here's an example of what California does, or here's an example of what another state does. We want this here in New Jersey and here's how we can make it happen. You know, especially when we talk about the educational programs, this is where the funds go. It, it is free for these schools to bring our programs in. You know, we're yeah, we just need awesome. yes, <laughs> and believe it or not, it's extremely difficult for that to happen. Sometimes they don't want to say yes, and it's really sad because again, we know that suicide is preventable, and here are some of the components on how you can play a role in preventing suicide. Yet, some people are still very closed off by it, which is extremely frustrating. One of the most extremely frustrating, you know, things of, of my position. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot been written about, you know, high, some of the more high profile suicides that have happened in recent years. You mentioned two of them with uh, Bourdain and, and Spade. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Another podcast I run with a friend of mine who I've known for close to 20 years now. Our first episode was we were this impetus for us recording was about Chris Cornell mm. uh, dying by suicide. Mm-hmm. Of course, we love his music, and like we recorded that, and then several weeks later, my brother ended his life by suicide. And mm-hmm. I, I have not gone back to listen to that episode yet because I think it'll be too much of a mind warp. Yeah, I can <laughs> so, because I'm talking about my brother in that episode, but I'm not mentioning his name, and I'm, I think I'm I'm pretty wow. vague about it. But the reason I, I, I bring these up is that it seems like suicide comes up in our general pop culture news landscape when these events happen or like when a CDC releases a a report Mm -hmm. and just everything with culture, it's, it's sort of there and gone where it's a big deal for five minutes, five hours. Rarely, Mm -hmm. rarely does anything have traction for days. And then it's, you're on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. 
and I just wonder for someone in your position where you're in a working for a nonprofit, trying to gain traction, trying to change things, what works? So we can all start doing what works. <laughs> I wish I could figure that out. Uh, <laughs> we're still trying to, but I'll tell you, you know, and I think this even goes back to having a personal connection to the cause. If I ever figure it out, I don't, I, I don't know if I'll, it, it, you know, I don't know how that'll make me feel, but I think it's the fact of just continuing the fight and continuing to push on. That's how we have to figure it out. Right. You know, so yes, right after Kate Spade and, and Anthony Bourdain, I mean, that was one hell of a week. I woke up that Friday morning and I was just like, I need a day, you know, and, sure. and of course we have all the, the news outlet outlets reaching out to us. Um, you know, they want to do this interview. They want to do that interview. I mean, even today it was, you know, how quickly can you get here to do this? How quickly can you, but I won't hear from those people on Monday. Mm-hmm. I probably won't hear from them tomorrow. Um, but what we try to do in the state of New Jersey, and I, I'm, I'm sure my colleagues ac- across the country do the same, is, you know, sending press releases out when when news does come up. And even when it's, you know, just recently we announced that this past year um, we invested nearly five million dollars into cutting edge scientific research sending a press release like that out to all of my local New Jersey state contacts. Um Hey guys, pick this up. You know, this is something we should talk about. This is what I want to share with you. So, you know, it, I haven't figured out the, the, the magic potion yet on how to keep people interested. But in my mind, it's just continuing to keep making sure that these people know what's going on. That's what I think makes me sleep a little better at night is that, okay, I've, I tried to do this outreach. I sent them what I could. I followed up with an email. I followed up with a call. Um, you know, we're sharing this information with them. And of course, when they reach out, we're always available, but you just got to keep pushing through. And some states are different than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues have found great success with getting the media to share their events, you know, year, year round. Um, where even in New Jersey, we still struggle a bit with getting our walks picked up. Um, and you know, even news outlets coming to our walks and, you know, just trying to share our message that, yes, this is about a community coming together, um, because they lost a loved one to suicide or, or these people struggle with a mental health illness. Um, but it's also a message of hope. Yeah. And sharing that and this uplifting that these people are also here to remember their loved one. Um, and it's a it's a balance of, of, you know, that remembrance, but celebration and, you know, trying to get them to understand that. And so, yes, it, it's a fight that still goes on. If I ever figure it out, I'll let you know. But till then, you. it really is just something you have to continue to push through. And I hope at some point that it, it will stick with them and. This time last year, I'm already seeing changes. They are slow, but I'm seeing those changes of of it starting to happen. And it might just take a little longer than I would like. (laughs) You know, I've got to learn a lot of patience. (laughs) Um, But because I care so much about this cause and this mission and, you know, yes, the work of AFSP, absolutely. um, But knowing and believing in educating individuals on the role that they can play. Um, it is something that I just will continue to do. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think would, would be 
interesting to talk about a little bit because you've mentioned, you know, education quite a bit and that suicide is preventable. And I, I think that touches on some of the myths out there about suicide. And I think even myself as a psychologist and, you know, I've had training on, on this topic and I think you still can kind of fall into some of this mindset of like thinking it's, it's an other that suicide only happens to other people or people with a certain kind of issue, people that are, you know, to, yeah. use, to use air quotes here. It does not discriminate. Yeah. They use like, oh, it's only quote unquote crazy people that, that commit suicide. Yeah. Like, or it's only families of this certain socioeconomic right. background. It's or people who are rich or poor, right. who are old, who yeah. are young, who are isolated, who have tons of social support. It's, people who have been involved in mental health care for a long time or people who have never spoken to a counselor. It's mm -hmm. And that's something we definitely teach the kids in the school. And I'm sure something you could even speak on and, and talking with people um, with, with your experience. But um, that's something that we, we really uh, have to stress that don't just think it's, it's this one stereotype. Mental health does not discriminate. No, the, uh, our brains, I say this all the time, is that our brains are wired to suffer. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're all suffering and just in some capacity, me, you, everyone listening, everyone you walk by during the day, there's some level of, of suffering people are dealing with and that's normal. And mm -hmm. to have an answer of, well, if I'm not alive, then I'm not suffering anymore is a natural cause and effect thing that our brain does. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when I'm doing a risk assessment or just like when I first meet with a patient, I just matter of factly say, you know, how often in your life have you had suicidal thoughts? I don't even say yes. Like, have you had them? It's like, how often have you had them? Cause it just normalizes it. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like when I ask people like, how often do you use marijuana? <laughs> Yeah. They're like, how'd you know? I was like, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I actually, I'm glad you said that because I haven't, I haven't heard it positioned that way before or, or uh, that language behind it. So that's something I want to keep in mind when I, when I go into communities and, you know, have, do these trainings and have a casual conversation with people. But I think that's some great language that other, even mental health professionals should know. Um, Cause you bring up a great point and it changes the tone of the question, if that makes sense. Right. And, and if someone says like, oh, no, I've never had those thoughts. And it's like, OK, that's pretty diagnostic and right. that's helpful. But it does open the door for folks to say like, well, you know, I've had the thoughts here and there or the last couple of years have been really rough or whatever they they happen to say. It doesn't give the option of a no unless they really want to say no. I mean, someone could still deny they're having those thoughts, but. I, I think it opens the door for there to be a conversation about it. Well, and let me let me ask you this, you know, sure. in in so much we talk about, you know, stressing the difference of suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, a plan. Um, when you're with patients, do you ask some of those same questions? Is there that is that just that one question that you start with? Like, what what are your thoughts behind behind that and kind of the different series of, or the, the different stages of kind of that suicide assessment. Yeah, I, I think certainly the type of ideation or, you know, how often are you having these thoughts? Um, how often have those thoughts turned into a plan? Um, mm -hmm. If you do have a plan, have you ever put together the means or do you have the means to, to put that plan into action? So if somebody is saying like, yes, I, I've had thoughts about 
shooting myself, like, okay, do you have a gun in the home? A yes answer is very different from a no answer there. Uh, right. If, if somebody has a plan and has the means, then that is, you know, elevates the risk that's there. If somebody's had a previous attempt, even if it was 25 years ago, that increases someone's risk for making another attempt, which I think for people in the mental health field, maybe that's just like, you just know that as a matter of course, but I don't know how well all that's known in the community at large. Uh, you mentioned the education. Like if you have a gun in the home, that's just, that's a risk factor. It's not, it's not about the second amendment. It's not about anyone trying to take away your rights. It's just, it's a lethal weapon that is very, I mean, if you decide to try to end your life by gun, there's a high likelihood you're going to be successful. That's a risk factor. Right. It's not, it's not political. It's, it's just kind of science. Yeah. The, 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 the politics behind that, but right. in, in even, even looking at though, like exactly what you'd say about, you know, the, the, the deaths by suicide with firearms, you know, even the toxic substances, mm -hmm. if, if an individual either is, you know, on a different kind of medication or knows that there's other medications in the house exactly. that are easily accessible, you know, that's another form of, of lethal means that needs to be, you know, addressed, um, for those who have been, uh, looked at as, as risk. Yeah. And the plan doesn't, I mean, just really with pain and the opioid crisis that that's been going on for quite some time is, you know, if someone is, has had overdoses in the past or has thoughts of suicide and I know they have chronic pain symptoms, it's like, well, how much medication do you have at the house? Yeah. And I used to do home visits and people had shoe boxes full of old medications. And wow. even if they weren't, even if they weren't suicidal at all, it's still, it's a risk factor just that they're mm -hmm. there. It's just, it's dangerous for an accidental overdose by them or like a younger person in the house or, you know, so I, I think this idea of harm reduction prevention, you know, educating everyone about the risk factors that are there, environmental, the behavioral risk factors, emotional risk factors, that's, I think from the mental health point of view, everyone I meet with, I kind of go through that process of yeah. not only doing an assessment, but also just sort of educating the person I'm with of, you know, here's what to, here's what to look out for. So it's, it's certainly rewarding work. There's some days where it's very emotionally draining. Uh, and it sounds like there's days in your work that it's, uh, like you said, you need, you kind of need a day to, to regroup. Yeah, you know, it's it it's it's not easy as as you said and as you know, but it is even after, you know, maybe taking that day, <laughs> I still look back and it's it's just such rewarding work knowing that you really are out there saving lives. We're we're not the well, you're a doctor. I'm not a doctor in, in you know, in the emergency room with, you know, this patient, but we're really helping our communities save lives together. And yeah. there's nothing more rewarding than that right now to me personally in my life. And, um, you know, building a, a family in our little AFSP New Jersey chapter, um, and just meeting some of the most incredible people to, you know, have their help and their support in, in this process. And I just think, you know, it's kind of that, it still gives you that glimmer of hope at the end of a, of, a, of a rough day. You know, you're doing something good for, even if it's one person. Yeah. 
And I, and I think that not only, and I just want to emphasize again, that the work you're doing for the survivors of suicide. So not, it's one thing to be a survivor of a suicide attempt where you, you know, lived after the attempt. That's one thing. Being a survivor of someone who has died by suicide, someone like myself, someone like you, and supporting those people. And because, mm. you know, if you've lost someone by suicide that you're very close to, I mean, that's a risk factor in and of itself. Uh, yep. So taking care of those individuals and as suicide has become more common, there's more people like that who it sort of cascades, it ripples and not leaving those folks behind or isolated. Uh, yep. So, yeah, you're making sure they feel supported and yeah, you're doing wonderful work. So thank you for that. <laughs> Oh gosh, I appreciate that. But you're, you're right. It is. And I, and I appreciate you addressing that because I know we do tend to focus so much on, you know, education and advocacy and prevention and, you know, uh, research. Um, but a big part of, of what we do with AFSP is, is supporting, uh, those that have been affected either by suicide or, or by suicide loss. And over, it's, it's overwhelming at times to be able to, even now be again, two years into this job and see the growth in some of these people, um, that I've established such great friendships with and being a part of their journey and, and seeing them transition and in, in, in their grieving process and, and being able to help them and being able to provide tools for them to help them, you know, in, in their darkest of times. Um, and it, it is such a strong component to what AFSP is, does such a great job at. And so maybe to end, end this, how can people get involved? So whether that's just on an individual level, like with someone they know, or maybe even getting involved with AFSP, like how, how can folks participate in this? How, how can they get involved? Absolutely. So with AFSP, um, I would recommend just going to afsp.org slash chapters, um, put in, you know, your, your local chapter, start with your state, um, because we have multiple states that have, um, numerous chapters that like New York has five. I think California has got five or six. Um, so just type in your state and see what chapter is, is local to you and, and, uh, reach out to that area director. And, um, all of us have volunteer online WUFU forms that you can complete that give you the numerous ways you can become involved with AFSP. Um, so that's how I would encourage individuals getting involved with AFSP. But I think outside of AFSP is just a Educate yourself. You know, the mighty.org uh, is a great website that posts some incredible content. And what's about, that site again? I, I believe it's the mighty.org. Give me one second. I just want to check really quick. Sure. The mighty.com. Okay. It's the mighty.com. But they focus really on the disability um, disease of mental illness together. Um, and that's a site I visit numerous times a day with the content that they post and some of the articles that they post, um, you know, just educating ourselves on what's going on in, in the mental health world. And then really just reading 
as much as I possibly can to learn as much as I can with, with what's going on. And, you know, I know Michael, as we were talking before about other organizations that, you know, kind of share AFSP's mission with suicide awareness and suicide prevention. So I would encourage other people looking at other organizations as well in their local community and, you know, seeing if, if they want to get involved there. But I truly do believe that, you know, AFSP is at the forefront of, of what we're doing and, and really leading this fight against suicide. And I love being a part of it. And it's something that I care so passionately, passionately for. Yeah. And, you know, getting involved and just for the, for the folks listening, you know, just knowing that if you're depressed, you're not alone. If you're having suicidal thoughts, you're not alone. If you've had suicidal attempts in the past, not alone. If you've known somebody that is suicidal or has attempted suicide, not alone. This is sadly very common. And I think in is kind of part of the human condition and there are maybe new factors that are contributing to it. But being willing to you mentioned seize the awkward before as another educational resource, to talk about it openly. And it's clunky and it's uncomfortable and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that if you have something you're worried about or concerned about or if you feel like you're not quite yourself. It takes a lot of energy to ask for help. So if someone is that you know is kind of withdrawing and is quote unquote not themselves, uh, you might have to be the one that reaches out to them. Um, yeah. Because it takes so much effort and energy to seek out treatment, to seek out help. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that is not given enough credence of, you know, if you're depressed, you're just, you're not enthused to do much of anything. Right. So it, it, And that's where you almost want to you know, you would rely on other people to notice this difference in your behavior, right? Because in, in your mind, it's, it's drastically different. You know, you in yourself know, and as I mean, as someone who struggles with depression, it's, I know when my behavior has completely changed, but to other people, maybe not so much. Um, but it's, it's very important that exactly like you said, one, for those people to know that they're not alone and that comes in many, you know, facets, whether you struggle with depression, whether you know someone, um, who has died by suicide or has attempted suicide, um, you are not alone in this. And again, to those people who want to, you know, do something, you know, make sure that you're also reaching out to your friends that if you notice even the slightest change in their behavior, or that they've just maybe disengaged a little bit more than, than, than you're used to, or their mood's a little different. I always say, especially when I'm in high schools, just ask, mm-hmm. um, what, what if you don't, Yeah. you know, and it, that, that person may get mad at you for a week and may be offended at you. Um, but I guarantee you in the long run, they're going to be thankful you asked. And you're not going to put, suicidal thoughts into someone's head just by asking the question. Oh, I'm so glad that you said that because that's one of those myths that so many people assume just because we talk about it means it's going to make someone decide to take their life or, you know, it's going to make people think about it. No, that's not the case at all. And that's one of the biggest battles I have with schools and with communities constantly is they're like, you can't say that word in my community. And I'm like, what? Suicide, suicide, suicide. (laughs) What's wrong with that? But it, it is still another one of those myths out there that people think just because you talk about it, it's going to cause this, this ripple effect. 
Well, I appreciate your time and talking about it here on the show. And if folks wanted to, to contact you, if they had questions or happened to be in New Jersey and wanted to you know, get involved, is there a way they can reach out to you directly? Absolutely. My email address is, I can make sure I share it with you, Michael, which I know you have, but E-R-O-I-T-H-M-A-Y-R at AFSP.org. And I, I always like to leave this, but you know, for those of you listening who either uh, may be struggling yourself or know uh, someone who is struggling, uh, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that's 1-800-273-8255. And also um, the Crisis Text Line for free, also 24-7, which is 741-741. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And and thank you again for all the work that you do. Um, AFSP for me has been a way to channel some of the grief that I've had. I kind of launched a campaign to, to raise money for AFSP on the first anniversary of my brother's suicide. And that was going to be a challenging time for me anyway. And having this project to focus on certainly a distraction but it also it just made me feel like i was doing something positive being able to raise money for for this cause for more education more advocacy more prevention so just thank you for existing thank you for uh being an organization that's out there uh pushing this agenda because it's just vitally important thank you for your efforts and for believing in our mission and you know being a part of our fight because um, it's a fight that you and I clearly both do every single day, but a fight that we we must continue because we we will you know we will turn these rates around and you know we will prevent suicide and we know that we can do that. So just thank you for what you're doing and in believing in AFSP and supporting us again, but um, playing the role that you play every day and in, in meeting with the individuals that you meet with and helping save their life. Every day is a new day. We're going to keep doing it. So uh, thank you for everybody listening. And my hope is that you, you know, gain some awareness some education from this and, you know, maybe, it gives you a little bit of a boost to ask someone for help or check in with somebody that you know, or maybe talk to your doctor, seek out a counselor. Uh, it's okay. It's I have a counselor. I, I see that person once or twice a month. It's it's very helpful to me. Go go do it. So yeah, any final thoughts? No, you know I think. I, I like that you said with the counselor, I myself see one. I think that's a whole other task in itself, though, to take that stigma away yes. um, from people. But I think if I could just add one more thing Please. that I think, just thinking of some of the myths going back to, because, of course, I think about this stuff after the fact, um, is that, you know, there's no single cause to suicide. Um, and I think so many people will try to focus on one thing or, or try to look at one factor, and it can be so many different factors that ultimately create, you know, this experience that someone has of, of hopelessness and despair. Um, so I think that's something for people to, to take into account when when learning about, you know, mental health and, and the role that they can help play in that. And also just that with mental health conditions, you know, people can go on and engage in, in a wonderful life. So there is this, you know, dark, 
depressing side to it, but there is also this experience where people come out of it and, you know, just making sure we, you know, you highlight that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think too, uh, the, the role that substance abuse problems can play sure. in some of these mental health conditions as well. So I know that was a lot of like word vomit. No, I, <laughs> throughout but just some some other closing things that i again always think about at the last minute <laughs> yeah and just i mean to, to tag on to that a bit i respect your time but with um that idea of hope that mm-hmm. if you're I, I think a diag a diagnosis a label can really drag someone down can you feel like you're saddled with that um one of the things i try to help the patients i meet with is there's hope there's treatments that work for PTSD, for substance use, for depression, for anxiety. Like there's there's things that you can do in treatment. There's there's ways to get better. There's medications that can be helpful. So I think a lot of, especially when I just first interact with someone, is like I just want to instill that that hope that there's options. And I think that's one of the things with with suicide is you just feel like you're out of options and. You know, it can be hard to see any kind of light when you're in that mindset of nothing works. There's no options. And I I think, like you said, there's no there's no one cause. And I think any person who's ended their life, you can go backwards and try to do like a root cause analysis of, well, why did this happen? Which with my brothers, I've done. I've written. I I think we as suicide loss survivors do that. I've written like 50,000 words about it. Yeah. And there's not just one reason, there's a hundred reasons. There's mm-hmm. and it's like that for everyone. And maybe there was something that maybe triggered it, but it's not it's not simple. I think that's what you're trying to say, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not simple and just for people to be willing to have those conversations with themselves, with uh, a person they care about, with a professional, um, mm-hmm. instead of just Keeping it sucked in, which yeah. isn't and I think helpful. especially too for those when we talk about you reaching out and checking in on on your uh, on your friend on your loved one, but you know really too if if you're worried about someone, assume that you're the only one who will reach out. I think so many times I find it in my day to day life. Um, I find these scenarios where I encounter something and I go, oh well that person will reach out or, you know, we have an issue with our apartment building and I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm sure another tenant will say something like, you know, but with this, I think it, we can get caught up in that same kind of mentalities. Someone else will reach out, but we really have to assume that you are the only one who will reach out to that person. Well, it, and it is our responsibility to do that. And it, it brings up my favorite, one of my favorite topics from like undergrad psychology classes this idea of diffusion of responsibility, which they actually teach in CPR classes because they tell you, when you call out for help, call out to a specific person, look them in the eye and say, you, you go call 911. Because if you just call out in general, like call 911, everyone's going to think the other person's going to do it. Yeah. And that's a great analogy or example to relate to what we were talking about. And, I love that. And we don't really do that with mental health where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, if you feel concerned, like, do something about it. You just, like you said, you just, that responsibility, you feel like, well, their family or their friend or their coworker or someone will, someone's on the case. I don't need to do it because it's someone else notices what you're noticing too. Right. And yeah, they'll reach out, but 
yeah, so many instances, you know, that that doesn't happen. So we have to assume that we're the only ones who will reach out and must reach out. Yeah. So there, there's, I think, a lot of good lessons for for people out there. And uh, I appreciate for everyone who, who uh, stuck in with us because we've gone over an hour now. So I, I know. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And uh, if there's ever anything I can do to help with your cause, help with some of the, the programs out there, uh, I get back to New Jersey a little less now. Uh, that's where I grew up. So I have to, now that I have a two-year-old, almost two, it's a little bit more difficult to travel, but uh, <laughs> well, if you ever are back this way, please make sure um, you let us know. And for anyone listening who's local to the state, you know, please reach out to myself, check out our, our chapter page. You know, we'd love to have you get involved, but then even nationally, you know, reach out to your local chapters and, and, you know, see what role you can play in this, in this fight. Yeah. And again, to, to the folks listening who have, bought the the pdf that i mentioned at the beginning of the show um just thank you so much for the support uh i hope you learned like where that money is going towards and, and how important it is so many thanks to all the listeners out there and elizabeth once again uh thank you very much for your time thank you michael and just you know ditto on what you just said thanks to everyone of, of your supporters that uh purchased that to support afsp we're so grateful and you know we're ready to turn those those fundraising dollars into saving lives and and hitting the ground running and starting with that excellent well keep up the great work thank you so much